Welcome back to Climate Emergency Manchester. I'm Lauren and we're back at the round table with Chloe, Simon and Jackie. Hi guys. Hi. Hi. Uh, nice to see you all. Um, so we're going to be talking about the draft biodiversity strategy today. Simon, I know you've read it. I have. It's beautiful. Do you want to give us your initial thoughts? Yeah, so it was, um, this is nothing new for the council either. This is the third biodiversity strategy they've had. So Since I think when? this is, I mean, good question. Um, I, I think this was a 10 year strategy. So if the others were 10 years, it could be 30 years, but it could, it could be shorter. I'm going to humbly suggest without having read strategy one or two that they may not have been a resounding success is that fair to say have some species depleted since (laughs) (laughs) i think we can without looking very um deeply into that say yes um, dependably what a plot spoiler (laughs) the strategy has been developed with partnerships uh rspb wildlife trust for greater manchester the universities so that's Man Met and Uni of Manchester and the Manchester Museum, to name a few. And if you are looking at the website, and we will post it on the show notes as well, um, it's Appendix 1, which is the final draft of the strategy, which basically this is a draft until it gets approved at the executive meeting, um, and then it will be the strategy. Um and I'm copying, I'm, I've copied and pasted from the report. Manchester has a diverse, dynamic, ever-changing landscape, dissected by a network of river valleys, which act as wildlife corridors and has some of the oldest formal parkland in the country. Topographically, the landscape changes from the flat flood plains of the Mersey Belt to the higher ground and acid grasslands of North Manchester. Never thought of North Manchester. Acid grassland? Yeah, acid grassland. Sounds like a good place for a festival. <laughs> I'm thinking we sort of Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, the acid grasslands of North Manchester. I'm seeing smiley faces. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, There are old and valuable woodlands, rivers, canals, meadows, plus gardens and green spaces that act as vital wildlife stepping stones. Moreover, there is a wide and varied flora and fauna in the city, including the black redstart, a small bird rarer than a golden eagle, living in the city centre and hopefully breeding there. It says barn owls are nesting in Manchester for the first time in over 75 years and otters have been sighted in Manchester rivers, which is a good sign of improving water quality. So this is all part of Government's Environment Act um, and trying to encourage a national network of wildlife-rich places. Um, And the government's aim is to expand, improve and connect these places across our towns, cities and countryside. So how does that fit in the kind of wider conversation i mean biodiversity is is quite salient at the moment that the government has proposed this sort of bonfire of environmental regulations and proposed these investment zones gmca is one of the local authorities that is in conversation with government about an investment zone uh, so how do those things work together do they not how do they conflict it's a crucial question, really. I guess the what the government's doing at a national level, you know, just because they potentially throw a load of regu- environmental regulation on a bonfire doesn't mean MCC have to follow that no. approach. They can choose to stick 
to high quality um, developments. But that's a crucial question for them. Um, I think the overall aim of this, uh, in layman's terms of this strategy, is to say, first off, they said we need to do, and it's sad that we're at this stage, they need to do a baseline measurement of biodiversity now. Bear in mind, third strategy of two, so what were they measuring before, comes back to that question of measurable targets. But they need to do a baseline so they can um, measure improvement or um, lack of progress against. Um, and then it's a matter of saying, where are our really biodiverse areas, our sites of special scientific interest, our parks, our um, really great spots? And then how do we build corridors for wildlife to move, particularly pertinent in an urban area where you can't create loads of new space um so how do we use the space we've got in a more wildlife friendly way to let things move when they talk about corridors are they envisaging areas joining up is that what yeah if you that? think of they literally mean passageway yeah. and like canals and For little hedgehogs to kind of yeah. Along. yeah hedgehogs are actually a really good example of it because i think that's the one that we all probably think of the most people get encouraged to put a little hole in their garden fence so that hedgehogs can move through gardens um, so I think it's it's more stuff like that. How are we creating um, spaces for mammals like hedgehogs, ponds, wildlife for insects and um, aquatic uh, amphibians to use them as stepping stones across the uh, across the city, and then that links up the river valleys, the canals out with the countryside to um, yeah to help it thrive. So when this strategy was discussed at the Environment and Climate Change Scrutiny Committee, Mandy Shilton Godwin did raise that point around this net 10% increase that you have to have in biodiversity for all new developments, that one flaw of that is that it is site-focused. And so you end up with kind of isolated areas of biodiversity that don't have those corridors mm -hmm. that we were just talking about. Um because it just doesn't work like that. No. Does it lead to gaming potentially as well? So that you meet a, a site might just mm. it's just focused on trying to meet that that ten percent. Mm. Yeah. And then Councillor Nunny from the Green Party asked, "What's stopping us from having more than ten percent net increase? Can we do that?" Um, and I think the answer was that you can. That natural research by Natural England. So that you can do more than ten percent, and it doesn't necessarily cost you more to do that. So, sounds like the straining for the ten percent anyway. Yeah, and the idea of more is, uh, you know, beyond the pale. It was relatively reassuring to hear from the response to that from the officer, the planning officer, said that there's a hierarchy. Um, that first the pressure is the first you should be asking how do we deliver. Um, biodiversity net gain on site if not that off site in greater manchester and if not that outside greater manchester but that we should be looking at it as a way of yes benefiting wildlife but how can we also use that to benefit manchester people do you mean uh, a bit like the section section one or six payments that they don't have to uh build in the um 
benefits to the public on site they can like give money that will then go to a school do you mean that's i think it's the first the first point they would want to know is how can you deliver it on site yeah but it might be that there is a benefit to doing it off site you know if it contributes to a corridor might as well build a corridor yeah um so yeah that was useful uh and they said that there was monitoring built into biodiversity net gain it requires a 30-year action plan Mm -hmm. um so that's one of the things that yeah if you've got the measurable targets in place Mm. um it can be really good is this the kind of debate that they're not going to have because they're busy from the previous episode uh just concentrating on the practical elements you know is it kind of uh going beyond the uh low-hanging fruit you know, to be thinking along these lines. Yeah, and so the council has a massive role to play here, planning especially, but this is one of those where individual action is disproportionately valuable because some of the best ways to build corridors in an urban area are domestic uh, housing, gardens, and what we all do with our own spaces. And in the report it said, um, the value of gardens for a nature recovery network in Manchester is threatened by a reduction in the amount of green and blue spaces within domestic gardens. Said research led by Manchester Metropolitan University in 2017 evidenced that only 50% of space within domestic gardens remained green. So what's being done to make that clear? Really good question. Because when I had a pollution mural painted on my front fence um, a couple of years ago, within a week I had a notice from a local compliance officer asking me to take it down. Two houses near me just recently have ripped up their gardens to put paving down to park their cars. Many on my street are doing that too. And I guess these things go hand in hand, don't they? We have a culture of car dependency within Manchester. And so people need places to store their cars. So they rip up their front garden to put a parking space in. And where are the local compliance officers then? Because I was told my pollution mural was a blight on the neighbourhood. And that was within weeks of it going up. Mm. Their tarmac that that depletes biodiversity, not a blight at all. Go ahead. It's because biodiversity is not as strong an optic as a a mural. And it's all about the optics, isn't it? It's about, you know, what you can see and some knee-jerk reaction. But it is your private property and you have the right to dig it up if you wish. Mm. Yeah, and if local compliance officers knocking at your door because you've tarmac your front drive is seen as nannying you could still provide information for people who you know still weighing weighing well i mean if you had someone knocking on your door saying why have you ripped up your garden to park your car you'd tell them to fuck off wouldn't you to a point you would but there are loads of rules on actually on you and your private property on um how it fits in with a local area there are rules there are and so there are avenues and i've got this is something I don't know a lot about, but I've got a vague memory from watching a scrutiny committee in the last couple of years that there was, there is some sort of requirement around planning if you're putting down a non-permeable surface in your garden, that there was some sort of planning requirement, but it's just not been enforced right. for decades. And so it's out of culture. It's too resource intensive. So an Englishman's home isn't his castle, then we're still going to have the state knocking at our door. It's just got to change. We've got to reduce car dependency. We've got to 
use our gardens as uh, more environmentally friendly. Or alleys as well, if you haven't got a garden. Mm-hmm. But the car, the figures for Manchester car use have gone up. There was something out recently, wasn't there, showing that car use has actually increased. Yeah. yeah. Disproportionately high compared to new people um, moving to the city. So it's not just like each person bringing one car. Yeah. A couple of other things councillors talked about were Mandy Shilton Godwin, the chair, talked about the tree action plan. Yeah. Um, not so, enough shade. So the, a lot of the newly planted trees, street trees in Manchester, died in the heat wave. Um, quite a few near me. Um, and I got semi-cancelled from a Facebook group <laughs> referring to the trees as lads. Um, but anyway, that um, there was, you know, people were trying to encourage one another to go out and water the trees, but not everyone was getting those messages, and I, I certainly didn't see anybody watering the street trees near me. The way they talked about it was almost like, in future, watering needs to be a consideration. Why would it not be from the beginning? It's a plant; it needs water to live. But also, they installed them all with watering tubes. So if you put a black tube in for them to be watered, kind of suggests you've thought about that they need to be watered, but then they didn't do them. That already is more thought than I'd thought there might be, because when you hear all the good news stories about trees, it's always about how many trees we've planted, like how many did we actually just get in the ground? How How many many of them live? Yeah, yeah. What's the state of those trees now? Oh, they're looking so sad. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are definitely goners. You know, they're just very droopy even though we're moving into winter now and it's been raining a lot they haven't recovered poor lads poor lads <laughs> i had lads. some oak uh, trees that um they'd be four or five years old and they all the leaves either turned brown or dropped off in june july then some of them have actually regrown these much smaller leaves in say august once uh, they got some some rain so it looks like they will survive, but it's more about the way I understand it, how much they get stressed this year, it can mean that next year they might be less likely to, to thrive. So There's a an iconic tree in um, Fletcher Moss Park, the weeping sequoia tree, that I'm pretty sure last year died um, because of climate change, because of the multiple floods that we had. Mm-hmm. It damaged the roots so much that it couldn't recover, and I think they said that like the the water table has risen permanently. Um, so that's that's pretty sad. It's the one that sort of looks like a dinosaur. Oh, that sounds nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Again, that's like something going on underground that you can't see, but the consequences of it are visible above ground. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, round here, they've, you know, we've got we haven't got gardens, we've got alleyways, and uh, I know people who've, for instance, um, put a, a bike shed outside their house, where you know, it's sort of place where you could put a planter, um, you know, for the traffic calming measures, and the council made them take it away, and people uh, putting decking out to make the alleyways more sort of convivial and neighbourly and more biodiverse as well uh, also being instructed to take it down because you know uh, not everybody 
goes along with the idea. So there's all these sort of grey areas that put them together and, you know, nothing changes really. Yeah, the uh, the only other councillor action I can think of to drop in that Councillor Jevons talked about planning and that biodiversity net gains should be planned at the front end and not an afterthought because then it's at risk of, you know, being de-scoped because of funding or not being sort of joined up in uh, as much as it could be. So it ne- really needs to be from the outset. I think that was a, a I, I don't know that it was a critique necessarily. I don't know that that's not happening, but just made the point of how important it is that all of this is really um, brought together. So, I mean, I, I didn't feel terribly negative about the proposals in the report itself, and I will put the link to it on the show notes. If you get past the first two-thirds of it, um, it's all nice, imp- uh, enjoyable stuff, but it's at the back end where you've actually got tables of this is what we're going to do. These are the different um, areas of sort of habitats that we have, grasslands, ponds, woodland, and these are the species that, um, or the number of species that we want to use as an indicator of how well we're doing in those different areas. So it seems good stuff, but it's all predicated on how quickly they can get that baseline of what biodiversity we've got now, and then how quickly they embed it into planning comms and enforcement with private um, ownership and, and rented houses and then link it all together it could be brilliant but based on other things we see come to scrutiny i can just see it going the same way as well biodiversity still just feels like you know sort of fluffy nice to have thing rather than something that is integral to you know our continued existence as a species. <laughs> Some councils have declared a biodiversity emergency. Oh, I think, oh, I think we did too. Yeah. Yeah, I think GMCA declared a biodiversity yeah. emergency. So I think, I think GMCA did, but yeah. MCC themselves. Well, no, but. I mean, based on how we declared a, a climate emergency, uh, the progress we're making on that, I'm not sure that it would necessarily help. Okay, so we'll touch briefly now on the waste recycling and street cleansing update jackie you have some thoughts on this well yeah it was just really interesting hearing how fed up they were with biffa really it seemed but you know maybe you know they chose biffa didn't they get they gave biffa the contract and so oh it's there's a limit to how um how much sympathy you can... Yeah, and that they only employ two contract monitors to make sure that Biffa are doing their job across the whole city. Yeah. And uh, it came out with the new... Well, I presume it's news that they've bought 200 new bins mm. for Manchester and they're, they're going to go in this financial year uh, just into the city centre. <laughs> so it's like, you know... This is the litter bin infrastructure plan, which I think is my favourite plan name I've (laughs) heard so far. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I know around here as well because they've they have such a hard job. The the guys they really do uh, because they have to like haul the bins over cobbles, and a lot of the bins don't have lids, so they're full of rainwater, and it's actually dangerous and slippy. So you know, if you're you know, working in that job, you think, for Christ's sake, we just buy some new bins so we can do our job properly, or, like, oh, they've got, I don't know, it just doesn't work, but... So, where we are now, kind of, 
uh, Fallowfield, Mossside, yeah. Rush Homey area. Uh, you guys have, well, some streets have the massive wheelie bins, the don't they? Bins, the big communal bins. About, yeah. yeah, which are... So are they just for general waste or are they for recycling as well? Yeah, they've got uh, brown for glass, blue for paper and cardboard, and then the black ones for waste and then green ones uh, for food waste and um, garden waste. So, you know, in theory, it should work quite well, really. But do you find that people don't necessarily put the right things in the right bin? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the private landlords who just don't pass on the information to the new tenants. You know, all these things have been... And it's a very transient population around here, isn't it? You have students, people who might just be arriving or just living here for a short period of time aren't necessarily going to engage with what they need to do around recycling. No, it's uh, a lose-lose situation, it Mm. seems. In the report, talked a bit about the impact on recycling rates of the pandemic. Um, Said that at a national level, recycling rates reduced on average by 3.5%. Said in 2021, the refuse rates reduced and recycling rate increased to 40%. Um, So things have improved since the pandemic. Um, Said that contamination of blue bins, that's the paper and card, remains a challenge in parts of the city. Uh, and adds an extra half a million pounds in terms of additional costs. Um, And then fly tipping costs about two million pounds a year. Again, fly tipping is such a difficult one to tackle because, well, it, it sort of depends on how you, what kind of fly tipping you're talking about. If you're looking at like alleyways, people have become sort of reliant on the council just coming and picking things up. So it's easier for you to just leave your fridge in the alleyway because you know in a few days the council will just come and collect it anyway. So why bother going to the tip or finding someone to take it for you when you can just do that? Or, you know, the other kind of fly tipping where, you know, for example, like on the Fallowfield Loop, it might be a van as driven there and dumped a load of waste um, like destination flight yeah and that's a lot of that is caused by people hiring these sort of man and van operations and not really realizing that they're just going to fly tip it mm. so you get so many of them on like facebook groups advertising their services mm. councillor Ilias from firefield talks about the fly tipping and said that many times fly tippers are identified but it's not addressed and they don't always get a response from the compliance team. Um, and they talked about the monitoring that goes on of Biffa. So this is aside from fly tipping itself. But the monitoring results seem to be overwhelmingly positive. So that and it just doesn't hold up to the experience of the councillors around the table. They were just like, is there another way we could do that monitoring either with councillors there alongside or residents alongside but it just doesn't stand up that you're getting these 100% compliance. Is that in terms of like street cleanliness so the amount of rubbish that's on the streets? I think that I mean I don't exactly know how the compliance monitoring is done but as you said there's not many of it. No. And the outcome we're getting is it it suggests a bit of a tick box. We're there this looks fine. I mean you can just walk down Withington High Street and it's just always covered in rubbish yeah same same around me um just near within shore park there's tons of it and t- fly tipping 
as well round Kenworthy Woods uh, on the edge of the Mersey Valley. Um, there's a ton of it. There's some stuff that's supposed to be coming in around like the, the waste strategy from central government, things like um, the deposit return scheme that could hopefully improve things because then, you know, plastic bottles and glass bottles will be worth something to someone now you'll be able to return it get a bit of money which might help to reduce the amount of rubbish that you see on the street it's the same thing that they've had in germany for decades yeah yeah um and um enhanced producer responsibility i think it's called um basically like taxes on the companies that create the waste in the first place what i really liked in the report was um talking about the the types of recycler so you had uh, committed recyclers, residents who recycle consistently, unreliable recyclers, residents who do recycle sometimes but are not committed, and then non-recyclers, residents who are not recycling and not willing to engage with us. They'll need compliance teams or service uh, change to force them to change their behaviour. And then there was the aware but undermined recyclers, uh, residents who are engaged or want to be engaged but are undermined by neighbours in communal facilities where recycling isn't done correctly um, and that's that idea of blocks of flats or areas with um, big communal bins and just uh, one of the councillors were talking how um, you've just got this issue of the big bins being collected the bin bags left around them are not and so you have to climb over a sea of bin bags to put your to do the right thing and and maybe we could just have a bit more flexibility yeah, recycling just doesn't seem to be something that's taken into consideration when they're building new flats. It's just... It'll be minimal, won't it, yeah. again? You know, it'll be what they can get away with. But that comes back to planning again, right? Mm -hmm. And monitoring and compliance. And political will. Everything comes back to political Everything comes back to political will. Some positive things I got are on the... Um, Renew Hub and the Renew Shops. Renew Hubs, as I understand them, is a, you take things into the recycling centres, also known as the tip, um, and they'll take anything which can be repaired, upholstered, upcycled, and then um, it goes to this Renew Hub where all those wonderful creative things happen, which that that gives me some hope for the future that sort of stuff happens um, and then they've got renew shops at some of the recycling centers Oldham Salford and Trafford um, where they sell pre-loved household items at affordable prices uh, a fourth shop is planned in North Manchester soon and I've liked the idea I love that it happens and that it exists but I don't have a car I very rarely find myself in a recycling center um, and so pretty hard to access them. But now they're talking about a click and collect eBay shop, which will be launched by the end of 22 slash 23. The eBay shop's oh. live. Yeah, oh, the click it? and collect, yeah. Oh, ace. Launched a couple of months ago. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So yeah, by the end of 2022, 2023 is quite a broad thing. So the idea is already live is great. So I, I'm quite excited about um, that because it gives me a route into getting stuff and then I can find a way to get it delivered or to go and get it but it feels like we're, we're finally starting to connect up all of the ideas you've got things which aren't ready to go 
to incineration or to landfill. They just need a bit of TLC. Okay, great. Now we find a way to get that back into people's homes. And so you get more of that circular economy. I think it was in the report from the Climate Change Agency that we spoke about in the last episode that around, um, was it like maybe 60% of total emissions are indirect emissions, which are from consumption, but it's really difficult to track that. Um, And that's all around the things that we buy, the things that we throw away. Um, And I guess this concept, the Renew concept, is trying to tackle that, uh, getting people to think about, oh, maybe I could buy something secondhand instead of just you know, throwing it away when I'm done with it. Um, I guess it's getting people to think that, you know, just because I don't want this glass anymore, it doesn't mean that it's worthless. Yeah, It's still a resource that could be used for something else. For sure. And going into a cost of living crisis as well, having that at affordable price. So it's another way of, um, you know, all the all these things that need to happen they're not just worth doing because they're worthy and, and useful. They're practically useful. Reuse things. They're, they're free or cheap. Um, so, yeah, good to see that. I'd like to see a lot more of it. And potentially on uh, high streets and shopping centres where they're empty shops, why can we have some of those reused to sort of just get it in front of people much more mm. practically than going to a shop and buying something new or getting it delivered online? And tr- training skilling up people Mm. to work in those shops as well otherwise yeah like fixing things i think you know when it back in the day of um make do and mend people knew how to like fix Mm. small electrical items and it's those skills that have just been lost although there is the um oh what they called the boiler 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 house house. yeah um and they have a sort of of a a traveling workshop uh that visits like Levensham, Stretford, and somewhere else. Yeah, is it in, somewhere in Mossside? It's in Mossside, isn't it? The boiler house. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can take things to get fixed for free. I got my bag zip mended by them. I think they have a, like trying to upskill as well, so it's not just like depend. These this network of shops isn't just depends on the same two or three people because mm-hmm. it's a good skill. For some people fixing things is good for mental health as well. Yeah. But it is just such a, a drop in the ocean. Yeah, like. it just means to multiply up massively, doesn't it? Meanwhile. We talked about uh, training up people. Councillor John Hughes asked about um, restrictions at the, at the tip. So he gave an example um, that, he, that he'd faced. He had 12 bags of rubble. But the limit is five bags. And so he was getting into an argument at the tip with the with member of staff. He said, well, hang on, I've got 12 bags. What if I put them in five Large bigger bags? bags? Would that be okay? He's like, yeah. yeah. But I wouldn't have been able to carry those five bags. So what the staff member, member recommended he do was to offload five of the bags, drive around the block, wait a few minutes, come back in, five more bags, drive around the block, wait a few minutes, queue up each time, and then the last two bags. And who's just saying, surely, surely we can... <laughs> we can come to an agreement. We can be a little bit like, yeah, can't, 
extra carbon emissions from driving around the block and queuing um, with your engine idling all the time. And he gave another example of green waste from allotments not allowed as it's not personal garden waste. Oh, you only have personal garden waste. Yeah, you're not allowed to do certain quantities of stuff because it's suspicious that it might be business waste and you can't do business waste. And if you hire someone to clear something out from your and take it to the tip, you charge... Um, your your charge for that they can't uh, put it in for domestic waste. So his point: this is all things that just make it more difficult for people. <laughs> and the response was um, that they are hearing that, that they are feeding it back, and that yeah, there there should be a bit more um, flexibility within those rules. But that I mean that comes down to culture and training and well the rules first and foremost. Then are the rules right? And then if they are culture and training. Well, thanks for joining us. Was it a waste of your time? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I could make a joke. Uh, No one would get it though, like rap. Just say it with a joke, jokey like panache and go ho 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 ho. That's a a rap, the Waste and Resources Action Programme. (laughs) How we laughed. (laughs) Ha 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 ha!